Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, Blight Disgusting's horror video game podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bow. And this week, would you kindly listen to us celebrate the 15th anniversary of everyone's favorite splicer-infested underwater dystopia, that being 2K Boston and 2K Australia's Bioshock. Set in the 1960s, our protagonist Jack survives a plane crash in the Atlantic Ocean and seeks shelter in a nearby lighthouse. Though it quickly becomes clear that the true danger lies beneath the surface in the underwater city of Rapture, a supposed safe haven for creatives and societal elites to escape the restrictions and moralities of the surface world. Though, as with most utopian ideals, the idyllic society devolves into an all-out gene-splicing war zone. But it isn't just Neil and I this week submerging into the plasmid trenches of Rapture, as we're joined by Michael Pemintel. Michael is an essayist, pop culture critic who's written for Dread Central, Consequence, Electronic Gaming Monthly, The Funimation Blog, and more. He currently writes for Blade Disgusting and is the staff writer over at The Pit, a heavy metal news website. So without further ado, Michael, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I've been itching to do this for so long, and I'm jazzed to be talking about Bioshock of all games. Well, I was saying to you, you know, before we were recording, Neil and I both had these sort of mental lists of games that we have to cover at some point when we started the podcast, right? Maybe not right out of the gate, maybe not even a year into the podcast, but we have to get to them eventually. And, you know, for me, this was a game that was at the top of that list. It was in my top three, probably, just because it was such a fundamental game in my, you know, gaming history, if you will, as I'm sure it was for all of us. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought a good sort of baseline would just be us going around and sharing maybe what about that opening hour of the original Bioshock when it came out all those years ago, you know, made it distinctly different than what we were playing at the time. So for you, Michael, like what would that quality be? I mean, the quality, that quality was its world. Um, I was someone as like a horror fan who had funny enough, just never even tried within movies or comics to even get into like some uh, aquatic horror. So that was drastically different. I mean, I have to look at my phone just to remember what 2007 was like. And I remember when it wasn't Bioshock, it was like Modern Warfare, uh, Mario Galaxy and Halo 3. And it was kind of the run of the mill shooters and adventure games I typically played. Um, The only other horror game at the time that stands out to me is The Darkness. Um, but Bioshock, I had never done anything like that. And I had never, I had never seen, watched anything like that. I had never read any, I haven't tried. Um, and granted, I, there's a lot of qualities with this game that I love about like outer space video games, which I'll talk about later, but the world is what immediately drew me in. Um, and what I mean by that is like that iconic opening when you're in the bathosphere and you go down and Andrew Ryan's talking and then you get that first shot of rapture in underwater and i was just blown away and then like yeah and we'll talk about more but just like being able to walk through rapture i've always loved that world and i think it still stands up to like 15 years later absolutely yeah neil how about for you (laughs) i'm gonna sound like a heathen now um (laughs) yeah no given um that it began life as an xbox thing i didn't play it obviously when it came out um and then when it did come out it was one of those mindsets was like eh, well you know it's been out for a year i've heard all the talk about it heard everything on the internet about that and you know the story and what it does and it's like nah, I'll, I'll leave that so it, despite that i ended up playing two and infinite before i ever played bioshock wow yes that was a weird one so when the chance came to review the collection 
yeah, I was like, okay, here's a chance. I can do it. I can do it all in one go now. And that's fine. And yeah, so I did and got to sort of go through the whole story that way. So <laughs> unfortunately, that means you come into a game that is, you know, been refined in other ways when you get to the sequel and in Infinite. But uh, yeah, it, it's nice to sort of have that loop go round quite thematically, if you will. That, you know, starting from the beginning all the way to the end and having obviously loop back round to the beginning again. And, and I like that about it as, as an experience for me. It was, um, so yeah, it didn't have the impact on me that unfortunately it probably did for many people because I came to it late and, you know, I enjoyed the other two games anyway. So that wasn't a problem. But yeah. It was a very roundabout way of things. I had the chance because my dad got it for PC. I remember that. And he was just starting to play it and he got for a party. But, you know, I moved out not long after that. To, and it was like, didn't really get into playing it then. So, it's, yeah, it's one of those games that passed me by at the time. And then you come back to it years later and go, oh, okay, okay. I mean, I think we were just talking about this, doing a recording yesterday about like Alan Wake, where I didn't come to it till late because I you know, didn't own an Xbox, didn't have a chance to play it. Say with Dead Rising, it's like and that was yeah, that was a game I really, really wanted to play. But yeah. The only bad point about exclusives. But if a game's good, coming back to it at a later date, you can still get something out of it. You know, and um away from sort of like the excitement and hype that, that sometimes is there that you feel like you have to be a part of. You know, to view it as a latecomer, which I, you know, I think is weirdly frowned upon more in games than they are, you know, when you think of film. And, you know, there's so many films, you know, so much history and so much stuff you can't have seen that you should see. And so no one goes, oh, I can't believe it took me 80 years to watch this film, you know, or like, you know, this film from 1896, you know, I may not have been alive, but still, it's like, <laughs> how did I miss it? It, yeah, it's, the fun and discovery of seeing history and you know mm. bioshock is his you know it has a significant impact on the way games were and went and you know there's no denying that you know it is a culturally impactful game so I, mine is very anecdote heavy and i apologize if i ramble <laughs> on but i just i love this game so much and trying to you know not uh not waste time with our guests of having to listen to me ramble about my history <laughs> with it. But like when this was probably one of the most hyped games of, you know, again, like my time with the Xbox 360 and that that was the first console that I was actually able to like afford on my own and buy other than like growing up with a Super Nintendo that uh, was gifted to me by like my grandparents. Um, and, you know, I had gotten my 360, you know, like some of the games Michael had mentioned, you know, I was playing Halo 3, I was playing Modern Warfare, you know, that was the sort of wheelhouse of games that my myself and my buddies were all playing, but my buddies aren't really into single player games for the most part, right? Half of playing games with them is just, it's a social thing, right? It's something to do. Um, and, you know, Modern Warfare and Halo 3 were pretty good, pretty good places to, uh, to, you know, bullshit with friends and whatnot in the evenings. But having a single player game be available as an exclusive that didn't look like anything I'd played before. Right. I think first and foremost, like that came across in all of not only the marketing material, um, but I think also just in those early teaser trailers in general. Right. I think that it gives you this a brief look into a world that seems somewhat familiar, but then it's set at the bottom of the ocean. Partially it's mm -hmm. like, I'm obsessed with 
fiction that takes place in alternate history settings and things like that, right? So I think that that right away was what grabbed me. And the fact that they're putting this fantastical world at the bottom of the ocean, right? I think that just that on its own was something that I was like, well, I'm there day one for that. And then the game was released in the summer, obviously. And it was the thing where I travel every summer. So I go to like see my grandparents who live out in the woods and so I like had my grandfather drive me around to the Best Buy, which was probably like 45 <laughs> minutes away. I feel a little bad about it in retrospect, but um, brought it back to the house, plugged it in, started playing, got about 15 minutes into it. And then there was a power surge and it completely destroyed my Xbox. Oh, oh. <laughs> and, so, and so back in the day, I would stay there for like a month probably to be with them because I don't get to see them that often. And so just having a bricked Xbox and this like killer app that was the game I wanted to play all year or the two years leading up to it was just like torture and just trying to like enjoy my time there while not being like oh man okay two weeks left one week left and then just like hoping that I was still in warranty uh, so I'd be able to play it so I didn't get to play it for about I think three months after that uh, (laughs) of it coming out. I think you've actually just reminded me that a time that I went to go and get a copy but there's a point where a game just got basically lodged in the disk drive of my PS3 <laughs> and when my first PS3 died like that. And so I couldn't use it. And at that point, you know, I was living on my own, didn't have access to a lot of things and couldn't afford a new console at that point for a bit. So yeah, it was like, again, the chance, that little window of time I might have played it then, you know, into, I think, which was 2009 at that point would have been great, but it's just, the way luck goes, yeah, there's nothing more horrific than like, oh, I just got this game, oh, great, like, and then console dies, and that's it. And it's- <laughs> so everyone had a bumpy first time playing the game, because, I mean, granted, I mean, and I think Jay knows this story, but like, you know, you both had technical errors. I had more of a human error the first time I played it, because I was incredibly baked. <laughs> and I could not, I could not get past the first 15 minutes. There's a oh. moment where you have to find an, ele- uh, an elevator. And I just kept spinning and I couldn't find. And granted, I was enamored by all the colors, but <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm going to play this fucking thing tomorrow after some sleep. So, yeah, everyone had a rough time the first time they played it. Oh, man. I, I was actually talking to you. Uh, we were exchanging messages in prep for this. Uh, and you had told me that story. And I was like, oh. Well, I was 15 when I was playing it and didn't have that experience. So now as like a 30-year-old man, I think I'll try that. And yeah, like that bathysphere ride hits a lot different when you're baked out of your mind. But (laughs) I think that, you know, having both sides of that experience, that opening is still, you know, and Neil, I'd be interested to hear how it landed for you, considering like you'd played two and then infinite and then came back to it. Like that initial bathysphere ride down, I find, does such a fantastic job of encapsulating the world, showing the player the world, and informing them of the world in a way that it feels like you're on kind of like a ride at Disney World almost, mm. in that you're kind of on these tracks, and you're learning about the world, and you're seeing the world, and yet there's still a great deal of mystery yeah. uh, to it. It's giving you exposition, but it feels like exposition that you would see in like a a visitor's guide to a theme park or to a zoo or something like it tells you enough that you have an idea of what you're, you know, have in store for you, but you still are very uncertain about how anything could evolve at any moment. The spectacle of Bioshock and Infinite in terms of their reveals are still just masterful. You know, whatever you can think or say about those games now, 
every time you, you start them up and do those bits, they are magical, those moments. There's just something about them that is perfectly choreographed and constructed and just shows you everything. It's that perfect through line of like, this is what console gaming can be and this is what you know, PC gaming can be. Because, you know, there's so much DNA of classic, you know, nine, late 90s, early 2000 PC shooters in there. Especially, you know, I mean, there's Half-Life is going to be a, a big thing there, isn't it? Where you had this whole sort of that drawn out opening where you're sort of learning about the facility by a train ride and getting to see bit by bit by bit. And I like stuff like that so much. And yeah, to see the wonder of this undersea world that, you know, even the last few weeks, like, going back to it to see that again is still hold some kind of weight to me i get like i said before it doesn't matter if you do come to a game late if it's good enough that mm-hmm. the goods are there you know you, you can find you, you can see things that have aged badly maybe things that you don't get on with now because games have changed but still the qualities that made people love it in the first place are there and clear to see yeah and i think that what the game does really well in introducing a world that, you know, you obviously you're surviving a plane crash and you're swimming to the lighthouse and, mm. you know, the engine's erupting and there's gasoline fire everywhere. And yet it kind of does, you know, it feels like a roller coaster ride in the sense that, you know, you're starting and you're going down, you have this crash and then you have a moment to kind of catch your breath. And then you have this wonderment of like being sold essentially on Rapture, the mm. ideals of Rapture, the vision of Rapture. You get to see something that defies reality and logic in a lot of ways, but they still are able to give the sense that like something is immediately awry there. And I think that the fact that they're able to do that within the first 10 minutes of the game does a really great job at just establishing a world that, you know, on the surface seems fantastic and seems ideal and, you know, idyllic, but you can just get the sense right away that something's wrong. And Mm. I think like when you're, the bathosphere is just about to dock, right? And you are going through this kind of guided wire, essentially, that leads you into rapture. You know, you see, and I believe the quote along the entrance is, all good things flow into the city. Uh, And what I love about that is that, you know, that's this very sort of uplifting message, this idea that like, we're welcoming creatives, we're welcoming visionaries. And then some of the lettering starts to short circuit and kind Mm -hmm. of dims out. And just like little moments like that, they do such a great job at being like, oh, okay, well, maybe not everything is as it's being advertised. And then, of course, you meet your first splicer and you realize the hell that is Rapture. But I think something that really, really stood out to me from the opening moments, and maybe it's because, you know, coming to this as somebody that played PC games back in the day, but mostly just played StarCraft, WarCraft, a bunch of like RTS games, I wasn't super well-versed in immersive sims or, you know, a lot of first-person shooters past Doom or Marathon. And, you know, Michael, for you, I'm curious, like, what was your first time kind of experiencing this, you know, the dual wield of plasmids and firearms, the immersiveness of the world, and giving the player, like, a certain amount of options? No, so funny enough, and I, I said this at the beginning, it's funny, uh, Bioshock was one of my first video game ever experiences where there was that kind of dual wielding element. I say it's one of the first because that same year we had darkness yeah. and there was a supernatural element with the shooting element just like this game. So both happened at the same time, yada yada. Um, I, first of all, had a blast along with like 
and granted it's changed in 15 years, but back in 2007, when I got to experience the plasmids, that was huge for me. I thought that was really cool. Again, I had never tried to dual wield a weapon with something supernatural or magical, and that did a lot for me. Um, the world itself, I was, it was also my first experience with um, Art Deco, and that I was you know, captivated by. Mm-hmm. And I was also one of a video game that really inspired me to do like a lot of, like, I was a shit in high school, but it inspired <laughs> me to read a lot more and to study a lot more. Um, so I started reading into that and learning more about that, which is so interesting when you bring up the quotes, uh, going through that wiring and what Art Deco was to represent. And then also the time in which this game takes place is very ironic. Um, I was enamored with the art. I was enamored with the presentation. The mood of this game immediately sold me. Um, it has such a incredible use in my, and maybe I'm using the wrong wording here, but like, it has an incredible use of mood and timing. Um, like that first, that first splicer scene you brought up, Jay. Like, I mean, granted, again, fifteen years later, I just replayed it for the sake of this conversation. I know it's coming, but that first time when you're in the bathosphere still, and the splicer jumps on top and it's like clawing at it, and you see the sparks. It, I did have a sincere and like no bullshit. Like, how am I going to get out of here? Like, I, I don't know what to do. Um, and there's a there was a great enjoyable panic to this game, and that sold me. And 15 years later, um, obviously having played it like numerous, numerous, numerous times, that panic's not there. Um, but I still think it has a strong claustrophobic atmosphere to it. Um, and it's something I'd be definitely down to talk about whenever we reach the point. But I think the way that the actual horror of this game works. I mean, there's a lot of facets in like horror, like there's bodily horror, there's the suspenseful horror, and it's the latter that I found this to excel at. Yeah, absolutely. It's a game that's, you know, on the surface is very um, horror-light maybe when when you think about it, but then when you go deeper into what it actually does, you know, there are so many great elements of horror to it that, you know, make, make it a worthy addition to the genre in in that regard and i think you know more than the other two games especially i think it it really does just capture that perfectly you know um but then i don't at the same time i think as a franchise it just ends up being something that likes to dip its toe in a lot of you know play a lot kind of different waters genre wise yeah and I feel it's like no surprise to me that around the time of Infinite, I was like deep into reading Stephen King's The Dark Tower series, like a few books in, like so much of that stuff. Then I was like, yeah, this reminds me of that. I mean, Christ, the, the Dark Tower's ending and the way Bioshock Infinite goes are very like to be doing those two things at the same time was just like, how the fuck did that line up for me? I was like, <laughs> and so, yeah. So it was cool, things like that. So I, I like that about the franchise that it does have that sort of, you know, keeps shifting, keeps doing little things, doesn't really want to be tied to any one thing in a way that most immersive sims do quite well. I mean, this is, as an immersive sim, this would, is very light, you know, it, it's very much like, mm. it, it's closer to a rail shooter than it is an immersive sim, but it still retains a lot of the story elements. And I think that's why it's resonated as a game 
for so many people as an introduction to that is that it is like, and this is not condescending to say that it is like baby's first immersive sim in terms of it gives you all yeah. the elements that work, all the stuff that really makes that sparkle, but in a way that's more palatable and more like not like you're not stood there going, what the fuck am I doing? I don't know what this, what, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know, you aren't missing things. You are being given the basics and it works. And I know that, you know, while I only start with two, you know, I think that did help me get into more of those games, you know, than I think just I, stuff like Deus Ex, Human Revolution and things like that, that came after. And yeah, I think it did open doors for that genre to sort of make a comeback because of that, you know, which I don't think it gets the credit it deserves in, in that regard. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And, you know, I would say that this was definitely like my first introduction, just to even the concept of immersive sim. And, you know, in an episode that is going to come up after this on the Evil Within 2, we talked about that being much more of an accessible game than the original yeah. one. And, you know, thinking about it now, like the original Bioshock, Anybody that had played any of the influences, that being something like the original Deus Ex or System Shock 2 or games of that ilk, right? Yep. They probably arrived at Bioshock and they were like, well, why are you calling this immersive sim? This is not really mm. an immersive sim. But I think overall, like saying it's an immersive sim light is not a discredit. If anything, it kind of, especially for console players with yeah. the game being an exclusive yeah. right out of the gate, it's introducing a whole generation to exactly. a whole new style of game. And, you know, Granted, when you go back and play it, it's like, cool, I can either focus on plasmids or firearms or, you know, kind of dictating the wheelhouse of plasmids and building up with, you know, the more passive plasmids as well to boost the effectiveness of whether it be hacking, melee, this and that. Um, it sort of, again, like rewrites console players' brains to a certain extent of like, oh, there are games that could give you more options just because yeah. there's guns or, you know, magical powers it's not as regimented as perhaps other shooters of that era, like Michael had said, something like Call of Duty or Halo, where it's like, okay, I'm either going to use the shotgun or the assault rifle. And that's kind of the extent of player choice to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, and I think that also, you know, Bioshock and its world offers up morality, right? That's mm. always been a big theme of all of the games in the series. And in this sure, one, yeah. you know, it, granted it in this one is more or less kind of like the... Um, the Paragon system, right? It's either you're going to save little sisters or harvest little sisters. But at the end of the day, like there is that player choice that is reflective in the game and how the game responds to the player's choices mm. in a way that, you know, for 2007 on consoles, I found to be, you know, eye opening yeah. until I would, you know, play other uh, PC games later oh, down the line. Yeah. I, I forgot. I realized as we're all going around, I didn't comment on this, but uh, this was also my first immersive sim. Um, and it definitely is like baby's first immersive sim and it got me hooked. And, you know, when we talk about like, as like a young person in high school at this time who did not know about System Shock, Shock 2 or Deus Ex, mm. I also it may, inspired me to look into that stuff. Mm. And since 2007, I've been obsessed with this genre and trying to play as much as I can of this genre. And granted, when I'm sure this will come up at other points. I do think some elements of its immersiveness have not aged well. No, um yeah. You know, like, again, I don't, I don't, we'll get there, but like the would you kindly twist has not aged well for me. But, um, it definitely for 2007 blew my mind and it hooked me forever on that, on the subgenre. That's yeah. all it was. It's bombastic in, in a good way. You know, it, it's 
sure, once you know it, it's like very reminiscent of a lot of stuff at that time. You know, think of Saw, for instance, you know, the whole, here's the hook at the end of it sort of thing. And, you know, when you've seen it a few times, it doesn't feel as monumental, but, you know, you were never going to, if you came to that game late, like I was saying before, it's like, there's no way you wouldn't hear about that twist, you know, and therefore you would never get to experience it that way. But I think one thing that's aged quite well in terms of like that, you know, and this sort of jaw dropping idea of choice, you know, that they had in that, you know, which many games have gone and, you know, evolved on is that, you talk about the, you know, the plasmid stuff and like the, do you harvest or don't you harvest? And the very, and the very simplified nature of what Bioshock does as an immersive sim really works quite well to that story because everything about it is like an immersive sim is a game of choice, you know, your actual choice. And by stripping that back the way it does, and your only real option is that they give you is almost, you know, spoon feed you is like, you can save the little sisters or you can't like that, which, you know, when you think of it, it depends on your empathy level of like, would you really fucking do that sort of thing? It's not really the choice you would make, you know? And yeah, so it feels like a false structure within the game. So it's another level on top of the narrative version of that, you know? So I like that, that the whole game in theme terms works towards the same goal you know it, it all works to the idea of player choice and the illusion that you're getting any choice and games in general doing that where they, they make you feel like oh here's your choice a choice b games were really starting to do that and ironically we you know how many times have we seen this where something in a game really works well and other games try to copy it and fuck it up you know they really what? fuck it <laughs> they don't get the idea of what they're doing they, they miss the point completely and, you know, the idea of player choice and it being an illusion, how many times you, when you really just go down and think about choice in games, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's like, it doesn't really matter what I said. You know, the conclusions are going to be the same one way or another. There are certain things that I cannot control. It's just bits to make me feel like I'm having some sort of special playthrough. But all games have that, you know. Even games that have very rigid, set-in-their-way stories will be different for you, than they are for me because we're different people. You know, that, that in itself is the illusion of choice is there. You know, you are the person that influences choice, not the game. And I like that about Bioshock that it, it reminds you of that and, and tells you that this is what you need to focus on. It's about the person and not, you know, having your own thoughts about how to go about things rather than just, well, oh, if I do this, I get this or I can do that and I get that. It's, just no, you know, it, the experience is more important than that. You know, I think, and it'll probably, I'll probably end up repeating myself throughout the episode, but like the more we talk about it and even elements of it that have not necessarily aged as well, because really you're never going to be able to experience that twist the same way after that initial playthrough. But, you know, this was a game that I came to, and again, you know, my idea of console gaming was very regimented. It was mm. Super Smash Bros., and it was <laughs> Super Mario Kart, and it was Halo and Call of Duty, which not not a knock against those, but there was this very sort of, I suppose, regimented or classical view of what console games could be. And Bioshock was like very eye-opening to see a type of game that before this, for the most part, had only really lived on PC, right? You've had, you know, those influences and whatnot, but even more so than that, 
and having those moments and realizing, oh, games can be presented in a cinematic nature and have a narrative that rivals, you know, cinema in some regards, as well as the movies. And having that in a game was like, that was, it was kind of like my eyes opened to a whole new world of storytelling potential. And it's something that, you know, the fact that this game, you know, draws influence not only from other video games, but like literature, right? Like yes, right. the Fountainhead and things like that, which, you know, I still haven't read, but it's the idea that, you know, I never before thought, oh, well, yeah, games could be informed by something other than other games. And so just in that regard, like that's why for me, it's such a milestone game and, you know, playing games in that, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, this doesn't just have to be sort of like building off of other successful games or mechanics that were successful otherwise like they can draw influences from more mediums um and you know when i was in high school that was very uh kind of like world shattering the idea and you know of yeah. course having access to uh you know a job and then being able to buy games or buy my first gaming pc and explore a back catalog of mm-hmm. 20 games 20 years worth of games at that point that i'd probably missed it's the type of thing where it's like oh well, you can see the foundation for it, but it kind of just makes it that much more remarkable that like Bioshock was a console exclusive right out of the gate. Yeah. And the reality that like that is eye opening. I'm sure that my experience is not rare. I'm sure plenty of people that had a console were like, oh, this is the types of games that we could be getting constantly or we could be getting more frequently rather. Um, and for that, like even if certain elements don't hold up still, and they definitely on this last replay, there were some that I was kind of like, all right, we're kind of beating us over the head with some of these uh, cues or just in general, some sections. But I think overall, like the wonderment of it is still there. And I think for the most part, like that stems from its world, which I'd love to get into, you know, Um, Michael, you mentioned like the horror aspect, but I think, before we touch upon that, like, let's set the stage a little bit in terms of just the world building. You know, you talked about Art Deco, you know, the Art Deco aesthetic of this game, you know, as somebody that loves alternate history um, and, you know, loves noir films and films from that era and things. Um, I mean, for you, like, how does the world itself of Bioshock really hold up for you? So as 15 years later, how it holds up is, and what I said earlier is in regards to great use of mood and timing um, and claustrophobic atmosphere. Um, the thing I love, when I, and I mentioned this a little bit, I apologize for being you know, repetitive, is like something I love about space horror, or horror that takes place in space, is it removes you from what I'm going to call the mundanity, uh, mundanity of day um without a time without a sense of time you don't really have something to grapple you to reality let alone that you're playing a fantastical video game you have nothing to grasp to like by all means please don't like i hear the keyboards going but like for silent hill 2 you can base the fact that you are in a town and i'm not saying that takes away from anything but i'm just saying you have a basis of reality there when i have found myself in places of space and underwater i have no sense of like reality i feel that's when i truly feel otherworldly um games like soma have done that for me too and so and and i think especially being underwater i personally have a subjective experience of feeling way too claustrophobic you know i am of the generation who got fucked watching pinocchio um i cannot deal with water and I have a terror, like a fear of like something from the depths coming to get me. 
Um, Neil, so, Neil and I have bonded over our fear of the ocean and the deep sea many a times on this podcast. Spielberg, <laughs> Spielberg has a lot to answer for. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I think the the physical construction of Rapture in its tubes and I mean, other than like what I'll call not to be reductive, but it's like lobby esque settings. Like when you're in this the bigger open aspects. And what I'm trying to articulate is that Bioshock's physical settings are not big places. They're not. They're maybe just a little more spacious, but it's always these condensed rooms. And I felt like it's almost like these closeted areas. And so you already have, at least again, subjectively speaking, nervousness going into these places, traveling within these places, let alone the fact that the the coloring and lighting are fantastic. And then you match that with the presentation of how a lot of the suspenseful elements of horror are done. And this is something that still super holds up to me to this day, even though I know the goddamn beats when they're going to happen. Like, there's the first, there's one of the first rooms where you walk into, like, a morgue-esque room, I think. Um, they store dead bodies. I think it's a mor- you would call it a morgue-esque room. And you hear a scuttering and you see a brief shadow and the lights go out just for a brief moment. And you're like, you know, this motherfucker is going to like, I'm going to get a jump scare and it's going to freak me out and nothing, nothing. So you go about the room and it still looks uncomfortable. It's still tight. It's still condensed. There's the creepy score going and you go, I, I think there's something at the other end of the room. You go get the thing. Um, and you're like, okay, I'm going to turn around and the fuck is going to be there and nothing. And eventually, as you go to lead out the room, the light cuts out again, and then they appear. And it's like by the, the direction in this suspense is always so potent to me, and it always stands out. It's like it's like um, the the first thing that immediately comes to mind is James Wan and how James Wan presents a lot of his, for lack of a better term, jump scares. Um, but yeah, I that is something that continues to captivate me each time with its world, and then just so I'm not rambling myself, the art deco element, the art deco element is something that I just find aesthetically pleasing. Um, how old was I at this point? I was 17 at this point. I was either, yeah, I was 17 at this point when this game like came whip out. Whip the snappers. Yes. <laughs> one of the youngest. Well, and, if you want me to make you feel even older, I was 15. <laughs> I, uh, ancient here. I can feel it in my spine, <laughs> but I had no intellectual understanding of art deco. And so in replaying this game as a current 31 year old, and looking at like you know art deco is supposed to be representational uh representational of um sorry i'm spacing out luxury glamour and faith in like progress whether it's specifically social and technical and then to see like where this is going with like the ayn rand philosophy and the ayn rand psychology and then andrew ryan and you see how much of a shithole rapture is based off these promises <laughs> Right. That that brought compared to 2007, my latest play came with like a much greater intellectual appreciation. Mm. Yeah, you're, that definitely is how I would describe my r- most recent playthrough. In that, you know, I'll start by saying, in terms of like the Art Deco side of things, when I played that in high school, I was like, oh, these look like the sets of those movies my grandparents are always showing me. Mm. You know, <laughs> one in the morning, two in the morning, watching old, you know bogey movies and whatnot. And I think overall, though, like my enjoyment of, you know, alternative history or having these fantastical settings take place in a society that somewhat resembles 
the real world, whether it be, you know, aesthetically or, you know, capturing events from a time period, it does a great job for me personally of establishing a world that feels plausible. Because mm. um, for me, like with games that delve into more fantastical premises or things like that, when it's a world that from the outset feels overtly fantastical or sure. completely unbelievable to a certain degree, I'm kind of like, yeah, of course I expect these things to happen. And, yeah. you know, granted, knowing what the game is going into it, I'm like, yeah, of course I can kind of get an idea of like where this is heading. But I think that that setting does such a great job of grounding you that when you do have these moments of tension and genuine fear, they do come across as intended. They don't feel at least, you know, on that initial playthrough, like, oh, well, I'm kind of burnt out on these splicer encounters, or mm. this has kind of lost the genuine terror. Because in the back of my mind, I was always like, well, on some semblance of reality, this is like a real place. But then, of course, it's always more horrifying when then, you know, there's this gene spliced freak that throws metal hooks at you and stuff that yeah. pops down and whatnot. Um, I guess also, though, what you were saying about just like the lighting and whatnot. And granted, this was the first time that I had gotten around to playing uh, the remaster mm. of Bioshock. And now, you know, of course, I have to go through and play the whole series of those now that they've been remastered. Yep. Um, but like, st I still think that these games hold up better than some games from that era or even some games that have gotten the remaster. But it's not so much in terms of like the character models or even the environments themselves. I think the art deco style in general looks really great. So even if maybe it's not the most polished of environments, it still looks really good for yes. that era. But I think what the remaster really highlights is just how great the lighting is in so many of these. And I think about... That initial moment when you get the shotgun for the first time and you're kind of like in the spotlight yeah. and then the spotlight goes out and then it comes back on and then splicers start to come of run at you from the shadows. And like being genuinely terrified of the shadows the same way that I am in a horror movie, again, just like it speaks to a direction that understands not only, you know, world building and, you know, the immersive sim, however light mechanics they might be like. It also understands direction. Yes. And that's something that I really want to get into um, a little bit later once we kind of come back from our uh, our quick break that's going to come up in a second. Um, but I think also just having a sense of direction, knowing how to use lighting, and allowing that to do a lot of heavy lifting, I think, for the setting itself. Again, it's not the best looking remaster you've ever played. Again, it's a 15-year-old game. But overall, I think that it does more than you would probably expect from something like yeah. that and how it's aged. And just to bring this up quickly, um, a big part of that is, like I said before, is the choreography of what it does. You know, yes. The way it sets scenes, it's understanding of what makes a scene memorable. And yeah, that, that flows throughout all three games. You know, they, they're all, they all have moments like that that just make you think, oh, wow, yeah, I'll remember that. And, it's a skill that many games just don't get, you know, and I think that's something that will always keep, you know, will age well in these games is that they have that sort of production value that makes it timeless in that sense, even if everything else ages. Absolutely. And, you know, now that we've been talking about it, I have more I want to say about the world of Rapture and kind of <laughs> setting the stage for that. Um, but I think we'll take a quick break. 
We'll come back and we'll talk more about, you know, the world building, the lengths that that does in establishing Rapture. We can talk about, you know, the horror elements after that. Yeah. And uh, we'll get a little bit more into the uh, the narrative and narratives and thematics of Bioshock that would then, you know, carry on to the next two entries in the series. But more on that uh, when we come back from our break. And we are back from our break. Uh, we're going to keep talking about the world of Rapture because I think that in just further, you know, setting that stage, it makes it a lot easier to kind of dive into elements of the game that, mm. you know, really do feed off of that world and just how immersive it is. And I think that, you know, in talking about it with you guys, that is the element that has probably sustained the test of time the best for me in those 15 years. It's still a world that no matter how many times you revisit it, you know, it might not be as shocking it might be perhaps a little less bombastic in terms of that original like yeah. you don't know what's coming around the corner any time but i think that you know it's a world that is rich to continue you know developing itself the further you go into mm. the game it feels like you get to go through different layers of rapture or parts of rapture that are perhaps influenced by you know, a lot of the different intellectuals that you run across or mm -hmm. even intellectuals that you hear about who have, you know, since perished before your time there. Um, I guess, Neil, for you, like, what is an area of rapture that still stands out to you that, you know, maybe you haven't necessarily replayed the game as often as Michael or I have, but like, what is an area of rapture that kind of stands out to you still? I'm going to pick a very finite and uh, piece of it which is basically like the interconnecting tunnels between places, you know, where I feel the most vulnerable in, in those places. I think because of the early introduction of like you know, one of them collapsing almost and like getting mm. flooded and knowing that you're deep underwater and that happening is terrifying. You know, like we, yeah. we were discussing about you know, how aquatic horror is like that and how it makes you feel like that like the helplessness of being in a place where you can't just walk away if that happens you know like space you know you're fucked things don't go right there and yeah so in those little interconnecting like tunnels like corridors that you have where it's all glass and you you have all this wonder out there. You're like, wow, I'm, you know, bottom of the ocean. I see all the stuff out there. And at the same time, you want to get through it as quickly as possible. Because even though you know, even though you know there are set piece moments, you know, and this is a masterful thing that Bioshock does, is despite the fact that you know there are set pieces and you know it's well choreographed in terms of what you'll see, it still feeds that little bit of doubt in. I, I liken it to, you know, last night I was watching, you know, before I did the recording, I was watching A Quiet Place with my son. Mm. You know, it's like, and that is a film where I always think it's like, I know what's going to fucking happen. You know, like every time, but every time you, you're there going, oh, shit, you, you, you're feeling mm. tense in those scenes, even though you know what's going to happen. It's how you build that tension and because Bioshock has that at the beginning, uh, showing you that that could happen, there's a tiny shred of doubt in your mind where you're like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm missing something and this time something might happen that never happened before. Like, because you don't fully trust it. And in a game that is very much about, you know, the, you know, the narrative is, 
you know, going to be different this time. You know, we are trying to subvert you in, in some way. You kind of think it's going to happen no matter how many times you've played it, no matter how many times you've done this, something is going to go different this time. And the panic of the glass corridor sort of imploding and you being in a situation where you're going to drown. Yeah, in video game tones, I always go back to the origin of that, which is chemical plant zone or labyrinth zone in Sonic, the Hedgehog in Sonic 2. Uh, that, yeah, the fear of drowning that comes with that little theme that happens as, as you get that countdown it is like this Pavlovian response to the idea that, oh shit, this means I'm going to die. Uh, and before you know it, it's there. You, you feel any tension, any kind of tense music that comes up in that situation, you'd be fucked. You're, you're mm. absolutely going wild with it. So yeah, to cut a very, very long story short, Corridor scary. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're, just... I remember. Sorry, I wanted to just interject because, uh, you know, I, I to to Neil's point about that initial scene, it reminds me of like my first bath bathosphere scene, and like, yeah, seeing the plane come through. That at that point in time in my gaming life, which it shocked me, and it opened up the door to like, what the hell else could always happen in these corridors. I just wanted to, I absolutely feel you where you're coming from. I think also like you make a great point about taking corridors, which are arguably the most mundane part of a first person shooter level design and making it not only to be the potential of a set piece moment, whether mm. it be, I don't know if I would call it a jump scare, right? But something happening that could be destructive within the environment. But I think also the, attention that are given to the corridors in this game that being those tubes it gives you a view of rapture that you don't get to see otherwise yeah. the majority of the time which i think if anything again it always reminds the player of the wonderment that's rapture because with this game you never lose sight of the fact that you're in this mega city that's underneath the surface right i think that a lot of times with first person shooters for me you go through so many chemical plants, so many sewer systems, so many kind of generic settings that it becomes defined by its corridors. And for yeah. Rapture, you know, it's not defined by its corridors, but if anything, it uses those corridors and uses it to remind the player overall about just the yeah. scale of where yes. they are. I mean, the leaks, you know, the leaks yeah. are yeah. a constant reminder of the fact that you're underwater. Yeah. It's like, because it is a very simple tool, but it works really well. You know, yes, it's like it does. you see a leaking water thing, you're like, you're suddenly, no matter how grandiose the, the environment you're in seems, you're very much reminded, oh, this is underwater. This is underwater. And, you know, there are structures of the game where you aren't really underwater, but, you know, and you don't feel it in a tra traditional sense. You could be in any room in any place in the world, but because you have those little trickles of water, they're there. They are there to remind you that you are there. You are anything could fucking happen to this place. It's already in disrepair. Things are fucking up. You could die at any minute because if this place just decides to disintegrate, where are you going to go? You know, you are fucked. Absolutely fucked. A hundred percent. If this all goes to hell, you will die at the, the bottom of the ocean. Because where else? You're never going to swim to the surface, too high, whatever. You are done for. 
And I love that. I mean, I love that idea of um, disaster movie-esque stuff, you know, where I think of the Poseidon adventure, where you had that thing where you're like, oh, it shouldn't be as intense as it is because it feels so hammy and all that, but it is because you know the implication of where they are. It's constantly being reminded, you know, that you are, these people are underwater, that Mm. even if they escape, they still got to get the fuck to the surface. And that's not easy. And the longer it takes, the worse it gets. And oh man, it's anxiety inducing in the best way. Well, I think a perfect example of that and capturing that exact thing that you're talking about is immediately when you step off of out of the bathosphere, you know, Mm. it's you take this ride, you're like, okay, well, I could still go back to the surface. Why couldn't I? You know, I'm rescue is surely going to come a major plane airline went down. So of course, if rescue is going to come, I could just go back to the surface. Mm. But as soon as you step out of the bathosphere, you walk through what is generally like a, a loading area that you'd see in front of uh, like a, if you were going to take a, fl- a plane ride somewhere. Mm. And when you, if you stop, you can actually look next to the luggage. There are these picket signs and on the picket signs, they say different things on them. And one of them is uh, let it end, let us ascend, which I've never noticed before in all the years that I've played the game. And on this replay, like noticing that right away, it, it kind of just instills in the player. Oh, there's no going back. There's no, you know, granted, of course, yeah. it's a linear game. So as a player, you're like, I have to keep going forwards. But the realization that people that were living here that, you know, left behind their surface life for this supposedly uh, fantastic new life that would give yeah. them opportunities, whether that be morally or creatively, that they couldn't pursue back on the mainland, all of a sudden are trapped in this world that, you know, is growing more and more apparent by the second that this is not a place you want to be trapped, let alone be in for more than a few minutes. Uh, do you know what's really fucking weird about all this and what remains the most relevant part of Bioshock mm. and Bioshock Infinite is that you think of someone like Elon Musk and the whole fucking Mars thing, and it's that. Yeah. That's a fucking Bioshock part. And yeah. a guy like him <laughs> is the exact sort of person that would look at Bioshock and think, not think, oh yeah, I can see why that would be a really fucked up thing to do. He would think, oh man, that'd be cool to do. You know, like, he would yeah, have his own like, zone in yeah, Rapture. Yeah, yep. he he would. He's that kind of people. You know, that's why it's in Rand. It's why it's Walt Disney. It's why all those people that are Our influences. Yeah. yeah, that's why they are influences on what the game does because they are people that. Okay, cool. They have their ideas and people latch onto them, but they're fucking cult leaders. Yes. trying to exert their idea of utopia and their idea of utopia is fuck everyone else they are my servants effectively and i'm going to sell them an idea of that that really works it's a i mean the last five six years of, of existence have been very much about that yes you know, where it's like we're living in someone's idea of what bioshock does and it no longer feels like an, an allegory. It's there. It's out there. It's a thing that is being done in a very depressingly real way, you know. And you know, an underwater city would be great because at least then they'd be fucking underwater and we wouldn't have to deal with the twats. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, much with the Mars stuff. But yeah, you just don't. Yeah, you know, 
I think the best thing about Bioshock is it kind of just shows it as being this failed exercise where mm. it, have, it all happened and no one that matters is gone. You know, that it is these people that bought into his idea, they went down with the ship essentially. Yep. Great. That's, that's great. That's how it should be. And everything about that game is in some one aspect of that trying to clamber their way back into existence, knowing they fucked it, and you being embroiled in that, and, and I, it just makes for perfect satire of what we're doing now with a lot of those kind of people. Exactly. No, I was gonna. Try, I wanted to chime in and say that, but you just said it. Like it is a brilliant <laughs> satire that holds up. Fifteen years later, it's just like. You know, look at the holes in Rand's objectivism and just the monster at the end is capitalism that consumes Andrew Ryan and Fontaine Atlas. You know, it's it, it, it's great at doing that. And that point I made about like, oh, this is what Art Deco was come the 30s and late 20s. And this game play, takes place in the 60s. And it was around, I think it was around just beginning of World War Two mm. where Art Deco was dying off. And it's like, um, boomer isn't the word I want to use, but like, so you have, you, you come in the sixties and you have Andrew Ryan with this, like, for lack of a better phrase, I apologize. There's probably a stronger word there, but like nostalgia driven, yeah. uh, it's a very bike. Thank you. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, we're going to have this glamour and this luxury and this idealism that, you know, like dipshits like Musk have been toting around. And at the end of the day, it's all this glamorous idea just, but at its core, it's just capitalism. And it's this capitalist drive that destroys the city, which is like, where we, like you said, Neil, where we are today, you know, but, and then, yeah, it, it holds up to beautifully in that sense too. I think that for me is the stronger of, of the, of the few themes that this game goes for. I think that's the one that still holds up the strongest for me. It is yeah, like because it, saying that terms of that lens of capitalism. Sorry. Yeah, it, it is very much a game that exists in that space of misunderstood things by the people that can love it, mm. where people will take the wrong thing away from it completely. You know, and I think Musk is very much that kind of guy. But you know, like Fight Club, you know. It, yeah, where it ends up getting a reputation for being that sort of thing that, oh, well, yeah, if you like that, then you're an idiot because you, you're one of those people that like it because you took the wrong message from it or Scar- read the text or like the subtext. Exactly. Or like yeah. Scarface, whatever, like that. And yeah, that, that, that is an audience for that, but it discredits what the, the initial source was doing, you know, and trying to sort of say, no, no, no. I mean, as much as I think the film is shit, I think, you know, Adam McKay's Don't Look Up is very much that, you know, it, it does, it gets the idea of like, you know, people just exasperated at the idea of, I'm telling you in the most basic terms that this is fucked and why we're fucked and this is fucked and like that. And you are ignoring it and making your own interpretation of it because you want to feel safe and happy exactly like that. And that's all that comes down to, you know, and Bioshock unfortunately is a victim of that and i think that's why there was so much blowback when you get to infinite you know why you know despite the initial praise of it there were a lot of people like oh you know very snarkily oh you know it's like that it's very heavy-handed it does all this 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 this." i get that and some of the criticisms are absolutely valid but i think it got more shit than it deserved 
just because of personal politics coming into it. You know, it, it didn't deserve to be maligned quite as badly as it was. I think it, you know, I think we, we put video games on a pedestal they don't need to be on sometimes. And there will always be people that will straight away have a, a knee jerk reaction to that. You know, that because like, they don't want, they don't want that to be the, the example that people go to when they talk about video games. And I understand that completely because yes, there are better examples of doing these things and usually by smaller studios and usually by, you know, more creative people, but it's great. You know, I, we were talking at the beginning of this about, you know, the whole idea of baby's first immersive sim and how doing that makes it more impactful because then suddenly more people get into those ideas and it will expand and open the mind. You said, Michael, about how much you read based on what you came to with yeah. this. And those are the influences you cannot buy, you know, that they are special, you know. And so I, that's why I think it's absolutely fine to do things that feel dunderheaded to the people that feel that they're too smart for that kind of thing. It's not for them. No. It really isn't. It's for people who want to feel like, oh, well, yeah, this feels important to me and I want to know more about it. Yes, that means there are going to be people that take the wrong message. And yes. Absolutely. But you can't control that. You know, that, that, that's, that's life. You, you can't control that. But for all those people that are like that, there are people that came out that with a wider view and their own view, even the people that took it negatively, you know, they, they are there to say, no, uh, you know, I learned this from it. You know, even though I didn't like what it did, it taught me something new and it made me go off in this direction and do this thing. And I think that's the, that is the best kind of work you can do. On a, on a side snarky note, just to piggyback off of that, <laughs> while I wouldn't, get into a career with video game journalism or uh, media criticism for another eight years, seven or eight years, seven years. Um, this was the first work of media that I, I, I like unconsciously was like critiquing and interested in breaking down. And like, it's also like, and obviously I want to just iterate that like in high school, I was a shit. I, you know, I wasn't like the best like student ever. I definitely got a whole lot better come college and I love studying and I love researching and whatnot. Um, this was the first, this was the video game that got me to be like, oh, video games can be art. Hmm. Like yeah, it wasn't just escapism. Yeah. And I know that's often been used as like a thing to stick it with, you know, and say, oh, yeah, art, art, art. It's like art doesn't have to be fucking profound in the sense of uh, you know it's not wind vendors it's not exactly. all that so it, it can be anything you know art is about expressing yourself and not doing things to a checklist for business purposes Agreed. You know, that that is all that has to be it doesn't mean it has to be agreeable it doesn't mean it has to be accessible i think it's the second time in a row podcast and I'm going to mention this but the Matrix Revolutions is a mm. great example of that where it's like it goes out of its way to not to be good on mm. a, a traditional scale 
And it's art because of that, because that's the point. That's the, the reason it exists is to defy, so yeah, it's to defy anyone else having a go at it and to defy the idea of what the studio want and that we'll do this without you sort of thing where, and someone coming in and saying, no, yeah. fuck it. This is my baby. I want to do this. So I'm going to do what I want with this. I'm going to use my characters to tell my story. And that's the way it should be. You know, that's it. And, it doesn't matter, yeah. If people, you know, go half a star, fucking garbage, blah, blah, because it didn't do what I wanted to do, that's great. Yeah. Because that's exactly what it should do. Listen to reaction. There are people like, yeah, there are people at the other end who will say they're different like me that will say, I loved it. Probably yeah. one of my favorite movies in the entire franchise because of what it does. Yeah. Because it tries to be unpleasant to watch and tries to be this thing that isn't like you expected. And I think Bioshock Infinite gets a lot of that, you know, where, okay, you you can define it in certain ways and say, well, okay, maybe the games industry had changed and maybe it was no longer this fresh-faced thing it once was. But a lot of what it does, as dunderheaded as it might seem, works, you know, it works for the audience that Bioshock had cultivated, you know, like that, and tried to tell them, you know, in basic terms, like, yeah, one of the big complaints about Infinite is like, oh, you know, oh, the, this very blunt force racism trope thing, like, that they got going on is, like, such a bad thing because they don't deal with it in this subtle way. It's like, this franchise has always been about introducing people who don't really get into that stuff to that and making them maybe care about it a bit more. And I think Infinite, sure. No, no one's going to ever say it's like up there with the best examples of doing that, but it still works for a wider audience in doing that. And I think in ripping the piss out of it for that feels unfair because it does the job it sets out to do. I wouldn't say that like Infinite does a poor job or the best job of doing it, but I will say one thing that I was surprised it really held up with Bioshock, the original this time, was how much heavy lifting that the characters do mm. in conveying those themes and how that works in tandem with the world. You know, we were talking about various zones and areas that are distinctly different, but when you think about who some of those I'll call the mid-tier antagonists are, right? You've got like Peach Wilkins, Steinman, Sander Cohen. By the way, not a single bad villain name in this entire game, by the way. I uh, just have to throw that out there. But I love that each of those mid-tier villains that you encounter or antagonists, um, they each represent like a different societal class, right? Peach mm -hmm. Wilkins is clearly supposed to be like the blue collar guy. You've got Steinman, who is this doctor elite, essentially. And then you've got Cohen, who's the artist, right? And you see the ways in which all these different people from different, you know, statuses in society, how they deal with, you know, the freedom, whether that be creative liberty that comes with rapture or the morality, especially, you know, in Steinman's case, uh, how that goes out the window. But you see the ways in which nobody is really impervious from the corruption of rapture. And yeah. I think that, you know, while it is not a subtle me game by any means, right, it is a game literally about a city at the bottom of the sea, I think that it goes about it very smartly in the way that it tackles those things. Um, maybe 
I guess I would say, Grant, that I haven't replayed Infinite in quite a while. And while I do enjoy that game, I don't remember the game really communicating its themes and its messages in a way that, you know, while again, it is not a subtle game because it's about a city in the sky, I do remember it being a little more like in your face with those types of moments. It doesn't necessarily convey it in the same sense through the characters mm-hmm. or through an environment of that nature. Granted, that's not to say that it drops the ball completely in handling those things. Cause again, I definitely am more of a fan of infinite than, you know, it seems some people that had a lot of issues with the way it handled its thematics yeah. and whatnot, which as I said, is perfectly fine. So it, it, it's fine that, that that game gets shit because it's the kind of game that should get shit. There is some crude stuff. Like, you know, one thing that has always stood out to me is, and I'm going to condense this because we have so much to talk about with Bioshock, but like, it really, <laughs> like, it, it too, like Bioshock, like, well, like all the Bioshocks, wants to have a morality tale and it wants to have a more, sorry, a more, more moral, moral narrative, not a morality, moral yeah. narrative, sorry. Um, and you get to the point, and I'm going to apologize because I cannot remember the faction's names, but you have the... Vox Populi. Vox Populi, and, and then um, the main villain. What's his name again? Comstock. Comstock, thank you. So you, you got, of course, you got this like bigoted right-wing, you know, Christian fascism, Comstock, and the game wants you to like look at all this very abrupt, bigoted, racist imagery, and obviously we know that's bad, and it's wrong. And then it wants you to take Vox Populi, the you know, revolutionaries who are fighting against that bigotry, and then it wants you to be like, oh, look, they're committing acts of violence too. Aren't they bad? Don't you feel morally conflicted? I'm like, that's that's fucking dumb. One of these people is clearly in the right, and one of them is not. <laughs> I know, but th- again, th- does that not just go back to what we were saying before about the idea of choice from the original Bioshock, which is, you know, like, there are really obvious things that, like, are you going to murder little girls to get what you want? Of course you're fucking not, but you're in a game, so it, it's the illusion of choice. Gamification. Only... Yeah. Yeah. And so I think what gets lost with Infinite is that you have that. You you are basically being told that, of course this is a fucking obvious choice. Of course that's that. You're being fed the propaganda of that world, which is like, no, both sides, both sides. And, you know, we have seen this in the years since that, you know, mm. the whole, the, what seemed ridiculous then is very much like, no, 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 you can see how that would be a thing and it would drive you fucking bananas to, to see an obvious thing turned into a weapon of choice like, like it is. So a thing that I am curious to talk to you two about is something within the past, you know, looking at this game and playing it 15 years later. And we've all talked about the impression this game had on us when we first played it. And this, as I've shared before, it was my, you know, baby's first immersive sim. It was my first time exploring morality in video games. If I get my years correct, you know, 2008 was then Fallout 3, which was also huge for me. So Bioshock was very important, and one of the things that really did impact me upon first playing it was the little sister choice, you know, harvest them and get more Adam, or don't harvest them, and I, to my point, actually, I don't remember what you really got. You get a portion of Adam, I think you get about half or less of the amount of Adam, but when you rescue a certain amount, you hit like a milestone, you get a gift, essentially, that 
has not only additional atom in it, it has a plasmid and I think it has, you know, health or something in it. So the reward is maybe staggered instead of being immediate. So I think that's great that I had to ask because in as many times as I've played this game, um, it's one of those things where it's like, I think where Bioshock is aged poorly is, and and this is something we'll get to later. I'm not trying to throw so much. Huh. But, um, one of the Randian things it tries to talk about is like the, um, you know, one of Rand's big things is like, there is no value, um, like, you know, free will and going about one's own mission and one's own path. Um, and I think that just is something that cannot be done in, most video games and there are definitely mm-hmm. exceptions um because at the end of the day it is a product of enjoyment and you can't create too real of an experience without stunting that yes um and the reason i bring that up because i'm ram- ram- rambling here the thing that i find an issue now and just talking to this one subject is that even playing the game on normal and maybe it's just because i am like a slower video game player at this point 31 so totally subjective um, you just cannot outweigh the benefit of the harvesting. Hmm. And I feel like that gamification gets in the way of the difficulty. Um, I found, again, I don't do a lot of first-person shooters, so that could be part of it too. But like, I've done playthroughs where um, trying to go about the moral path of saving them just leads to just like a fucking struggle. You know, hmm. and like, I've, I've found resources in this game to be difficult at times. I'm not even great at the hacking mini game. Um, and so the gamification of this game is something that I have issues with. I also have it in issues when it comes to the would you kindly twist, but that's something I will, we can get to later. Um, so talking to gamification and the little sisters, what do you two, do you, do you think, do you think it's really not that much of a moral choice when you're trying to play a video game or does it really do like, are you stopped in your tracks? Do you think about it? I think that overall, I would say, you know, it does feed this idea of is Jack, cause Jack is a blank slate essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Is he going to succumb to the allure of rapture the same way that everybody else that went there purposefully did? Right. I think for a majority of the experience, you're like, well, he's not here by choice. But then, of course, when you learn about the reveal, it's like, well, it was inevitable. But I think that, you know, that only, though, holds up the first time you're playing the game. And, well, I guess I'll take that back. You only really can think about it in those terms when you've played the game more than once. The sense of, oh, well, if you're viewing this as he's just somebody stumbling upon Rapture, does he give into the allure and just be like, well... There's no morality here, so I'm just going to harvest everything and become essentially, you know, like uh, Fontaine. He's going to become a, a spliced up monster demigod by the end of the game. Or are you going to be this person that's like, oh, I'm going to retain my humanity and, you know, not harvest but save. And then you get the rewards trickled out throughout the game. Um, and it's staggered, obviously. I do think, though, that speaking about it from like the gamification side of things, you know, if you're just going to, this game is not best served as playing primarily as a first person shooter, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if any of us would think that, you know, sure. that it's a, a exceedingly strong shooting mechanic. I think that 
the shooting mechanics in the game are fine when you have them in conjunction with the plasmids. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's the best of both worlds, essentially, but neither one is really viable on their own uh, at a certain point. I do think, however, that it definitely makes it artificially difficult to a degree in the later half of the game if you've been going down this, like, morally righteous path. Because at a certain point, you're like, well, the benefit immediately of harvesting is going to make me essentially like a demigod. And then if you can, you know, you just have a much easier time getting to that later portion of the game. Yes. Yeah, I guess, Neil, how do you feel about that? I think it's actually the masterstroke of the entire game, meta-textually. Because you are basically tying into the, the idea of the game, telling you what it wants you to do. And the propaganda that exists within the game world, it's basically pushing you to do that and make your life easier at the expense of others, which is, you know, the theme of this whole place. You know, that, mm. that, that is what it is. It is someone basically saying, I'm going to soak on this big idea, but to do it, I need your sacrifice sort of thing to make everything better for all of us. Even though, you know, if you thought about it that for even a second, it's fucking stupid. But, you know, it entices the kind of people that won't think about that for more than a second. And I suppose it goes into that. Sorry, that wasn't slagging anyone that chose a different. <laughs> Just, but, <laughs> this podcast is over. <laughs> but that's, there's the thing, isn't it? It's like, like I said earlier, it's like, it's such a obvious choice when you really think about it. It's like, of course I would fucking kill a bunch of little girls just to get, better again that's stupid but there's where it presents in a way that tells you that well but it could do you good it could make the game easier for you it could make everything work right for you and that's what the game wants you to do that's what ryan wants you to do it wants you to be like that it's like an initiation into his way of thinking and I think if you're going to criticize anywhere where the game falls short is that when you get towards the end of that, it's like you don't really have the choice to sort of decide if that was really what you wanted to do. You know, because you still have to confront him and you still have to do that. And that, I suppose, if you could give it any credence, you would then say is, well, you're either coming into that confrontation as uh, I don't believe in your ideals and I'm here to fight you. Or you're going into it, it's like, I like your ideals, but I think I could do them better. I'm going here to usurp you. And so I think that's a really interesting thing that doesn't you know, present itself necessarily as and when you're doing it. But yeah, I, as I said before, the most dunderheaded part about it has depth and the depth is based, is there based on what the story is doing and is all throughout. Well, I only just learned recently that like the little sisters were not the original intention of them being, you know, little girls. It was mm. originally supposed to be, you know, the sea slugs that you only learn about really in yeah. the audio diaries. Oh. But, uh, but of course they found out that like, there's no investment in should I harvest or save a yeah. sea slug? Yes. So there's that sort of like emotional manipulation a little mm. bit uh, in that, you know, of course of having them be, you know, little girls and whatnot. Um, also, you know, their relationship 
with the big daddies then is able to flourish in that sense of, you know, it's again, it's different if you have this hulking metal thing and then it's protecting a sea slug. Whereas the father daughter relationship, like initially it does give you sort of a pause before engaging because all of those fights are, you know, the player's choice, whether they want to engage with the big daddy, go into those essentially mini boss fights and, you know, you can reap the rewards how you see fit. And, you know, once you just kill it, but like, I think that that's a really smart, again, building off of that sort of emotional manipulation Mm -hmm. and that the other layer of that is like interfering with a father-daughter relationship and, you know, stripping that child of a father figure, um, you know, even though we know that there are multiple big daddies in the world. But I think that that's just another – that is probably something, again, that I didn't appreciate until my most recent playthrough because just seeing that as being a relationship that like the player themselves has – somewhat with like Ryan but didn't know it and it's kind of like oh they've got this this gap in their life essentially mm-hmm. of trying to fill yeah. probably that missing link and then am I going to take that from x y and z number of children that you encounter throughout the various uh yeah, levels it, of rapture there's a through line of abusive relationships you know in all of what BioShock does you know and in a sense of like uh, validation oh. wanting to feel loved and that ends up being there, you know, not just for the character, you know, the player, but also for you know, the little sisters. You know, they never heard uh, of everything before. Wow. You know, you know, it's like they're there. They, they have this for them. You know, it's like they are then given a father figure that is brutal, but kind in the sense that they are protective, but they mm. aren't really great for them you know, like that. Oh. And, they're really when you break it down their job is basically to protect what they cultivate you know it's like yeah it's it not feels like, like environment yeah, it's like they, they they feel like they're father figures but they're really just security guards yeah well, uh, if I and, secure, yeah. and because these children you know the innocence of them don't know any better that's how they see them and that weird relationship that comes out of that is so fucked up but it's there and always to me is one of the most fascinating parts of the Bioshock one and two universes that you have that weird relationship. And in a way it even carries on into infinite with the Elizabeth thing. You know, it's like infinite is very forward about that, but like, I didn't even think about it when like, now that you're talking about it, I I fucking see it with Bioshock Mm. and Bioshock two. And I never thought of it like that because infinite is so forward with it. Yeah, yeah, it really does uh, do it more up front. Almost like we we needed to hear it more up front, given the uh, certain reactions to Bioshock by <laughs> certain audience. It's like, no, no, you're not getting it, so we're going to make it simple for you. We're going <laughs> to yell at you now. <laughs> like that, and yeah, I, I get that. It, it's a fascinating uh, series in that regard. Moving on from sort of the morality aspect of that, and, you know, we touched upon the horrors of that big daddy and little sister relationship. Like at the end of the day, the reality is, is that, you know, you have two groups that are being brought together that find a union, but it's an artificial and it's a monstrous union, like the creation of that in and of itself. I think, you know, it's really just to placate both of them psychologically. You have somebody that has been genetically altered children, and then you've got people that are being genetically altered to be in these massive hulking suits. Which is what makes Bioshock 2 so interesting as a story, because then you're getting 
the reason that was a failed experiment mm. is because there was actual care in the relationship, you know, and seeing that and that's the revision was to basically make them more mindless and not caring about the little sisters, but more about the job at hand. And, you know, the, the character you are inhibiting is that. And it works as a really nice evolution of that, you know. I will say, as soon as I finished uh, replaying Bioshock, I immediately downloaded Bioshock 2. And I plan on playing it next week when I'm on vacation because I I don't know if I ever truly finished that one. I know I got about halfway through and then I came to it late and I think it was around the time when Infinite came out. So I was like, mm-hmm. oh, well. That comes out on my birthday. I'm not going to not dive into the new Bioshock. Um, so I dove right into that. But I definitely need to replay that because, you know, it was something Michael said earlier that really resonated with me and that, you know, playing the game early on when I was in high school and then, you know, fresh out of yeah. or fresh into college, playing through Bioshock, like appreciated the story, but didn't really latch on to some of the nuances of it and the mm-hmm. lore and whatnot. And Understandable. You know, going through the audio logs and all that they have and how rich they are, you know, searching them out, not from a point of like, oh, let me get this achievement, but from just the little, even the mundane sort of Mm. anecdotes from people that are living in that society, um, I think does a great job at fleshing out the horror of this game because you can see, you hear the decline almost in real time per audio log. You know, again, it speaks to... The way in which horror is facilitated through this, you know, it very quickly becomes apparent, oh, there are these monsters that want to kill you. But the fact that they don't layer on the apocalyptic nature of rapture so heavy from the outset, right? I think that a lot of the audio dialogues are talking about very subtle things that lead to the belief that, oh, this is a society that collapsed. And, you know, that I think when you... I don't know, maybe it's just something about like getting older. I started to attribute that to like, oh, this is how a majority of societies or idyllic societies yeah. like collapse or governments collapse, right? Initially, if there's a, power, a regime change, hmm. oh, everybody is happy. Everybody is thrilled at certain freedoms or liberties. But people on the ground level of things are noticing slight changes day to day that go against the ideology or the methodology yeah. that goes into those or, like idyllic settings. Or they're basically bullied into thinking that they, they have to have a certain amount of power. And, you know, mm. that here being, you know, the stuff that they can eat in Adam, you know, to make them better, you know, that, that is the thing they're fed to make the thing. They, if I do this, I can be the, one of the top guys, one of the people that really gets cared about. And, you know, again, a very relevant point. to this day you know the idea that you have been so indoctrinated in what this belief system is that you will literally destroy who you are to become something else you know and and without even realizing it and do we not see this every day on on, on social media where you'll see people that have these opinions where you're like i don't get it i don't get how you can think like that Mm. You know, I don't understand how that can be a valid view, and it just seems fucked up and wrong and over the top. And but you know that they needed something or someone at a certain time in their life to be an excuse for everything that's wrong with them, and it came, and that was it. They latched onto it, and that's their belief system. And you know, Adam is the belief system in mm. rapture but it just happens to be devastatingly 
bad in this sort of microcosm of what society is because there is no escape there's no out and so naturally everything goes to shit because of course it does because what what else is going to happen when you have no outlet or no way out when you have a very one person's idea of what society should be and their idea is already shit to begin with and very much focused on what they want to do of course it's going to fuck up in quicker time yeah we've seen it in the last few years, you know, you see why these these things eventually fuck up. It's because they just don't have the, the shelf life to work. You know, they are, they're never going to work long term because they they're destructive to a, a functioning society. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's for it, for lack of a better term, it's all an individualistic point of view yeah. that's not looking out for mm. the greater good of the people. It's yeah. always the most self-serving, profit-driven direction. Yeah, rungs on a ladder. Always rungs on a ladder with this sort of stuff. You know, something that I think we haven't really... I think Michael brought it up earlier in our chat, but we didn't. We kind of moved on from it that I want to come back to is the sort of smaller-scale horror moments. Um, and I think I referenced it earlier. Um, but just the idea that, you know, we've been talking a lot about the horrifying nature of Rapture, the thematics that are intrinsic to that. But like some of the moments that I find that really capitalize on the, you know, tense atmosphere, you know, it being very claustrophobic that maybe some people find don't hold up as well as I do. But like, I'm really a fan of the scripted sequences in this, those slight little scares that are tied to certain environments. Like I think about when you're exploring a dentist office early on, right? And you're walking through what looks like one or two other little environments that you've come to, but there's just a slight tweak to that where you're walking through it. And then like this mist comes down that obscures your view. Mm -hmm. And then when you turn around, there's like a splicer tied to that area. That's right there. That kind of swings at you. Like there are lots of little moments like that. And granted, it's not to say that like Bioshock was the first to do it, but I find that Bioshock has a very, even-handed approach to horror. Again, it has an environment and it has central figures. It has the thematics that all show, you know, the horrifying side of man and the abuse of power. But it does have, I guess what I would refer to as like little genre moments. Moments that, you know, you're going to see them coming more often than not. But it, it is able to capitalize on a setting and the setting's maybe unique properties in a way that just, it feels very natural to that setting in and of itself. Personal horror stuff that sticks out for me, other than like the atmospheric stuff I had mentioned earlier, um, I want to shout out, I think I'd call it one of my favorite scripted moments is, um, I'm going to forget his name, but uh, it's the plastic surgeon. Uh, Steinman. Steinman, thank you. And when you're behind the glass, it's before the Steinman boss fight, and he's just complaining about his different patients, and like each spotlight hits a different body. And I just, I mean, I've seen my fair share of like fucked up, mutilated stuff in horror movies and video games. And that scene continues to bother me that, yeah, I don't know why. I, don't, I think it's because it just has such a condescending, cruel air to it. Um, but that scene always bothers me. So that's a particular set piece I want to uh, speak to. A thing in general I like about this game are the splicers. I know the big daddy is the commercial selling point. Um, but I honestly think the splicers are stronger. Um, and it has to do um, with the small sliver of humanity in them. I cannot stand that shit. It makes me so uncomfortable to have like 
just a touch of humanity in their like craziness. And what I mean by that is just like, sometimes you'll see the moments where like maybe one of them is walking around or maybe they're dancing. If like, there's some kind of like dance or artistic character or whatnot, but it's all most of all the time. It's the dialogue for me, like the conversations they'll have with each other, the conversations that they'll have with themselves. And those encounters are always just so uncomfortable. And that's something I think the game still holds up to, to this day. Um, because I just can't remember every single moment that happens, but like the immediate one that comes to mind, I know we keep referring to things from early in the game, um, but it's the baby carriage scene. Yes. I was literally, I was writing a note down to mention that. (laughs) Like, it's great because, and that's okay. So like, even though you called me out on my bullshit, Neil, about the little sisters, (laughs) the baby carriage scene got me to hesitate. It got me to hesitate the first time. I'm like, oh shit, like I'm not gonna pull a gun out on this woman if she's with her kid. And then come to find out there's a gun in there, you know? <laughs> but that's a great moment because, you know, it captures some semblance of what the splicer's life was like before, you know, being spliced, which I think largely is what defines them. It's easy, you know, granted. There are various types of splicers and they all have these little nicknames like the Houdini splicers and whatnot, or just even calling them splicers. But you're right, Michael, in the fact that they retain a semblance of their previous life, it shines through in their identity. That's what makes it far more disturbing. And it's what stops them from being just generic fodder for me. You know, you might be able to describe them as such, but I think that... don't feel that way. Yeah, you don't feel that way moment to moment, I think, in engaging them. Um, I do want to mention you or take it back to Steinman for a second. What and this kind of ties into what I was saying about me wanting to search out as many audio logs as possible. That is always a disturbing moment, right? Steinman and you kind of have that moment where you're like, oh, geez, he's like just experimenting on people in a way he could never do in the real world. Yeah. But when you find the audio logs prior to that, there's one instance and it's a good like 30 minutes before that boss fight you're exploring this nightclub essentially that there was like a famous bombing on New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. And you kind of listen to an audio log from there about this woman that experiences the bombing in real time. You find another audio log from her that says, oh, she was horrifically, horrifically disfigured from the bombing. But she found this doctor, Dr. Steinman, who's willing to do reconstructive surgery to make her as beautiful as she used to be. And then later on, you find another audio log that's of Steinman in the operating room, and he essentially can't stop cutting this woman's face up, and the nurse has to run and get other doctors to help. Like, I had never found some of those tapes before, and it made that sequence so much more disturbing in a way that it's like, it's incredibly chilling. And the fact that that's missable, and I've played this now four or five times, and I had Mm. just found one audio log that I just never came across, and it heightens that terror in a way that, you know, it's something akin to like reading a novel and it's just the words are burned into the back of your brain in a way that is like yes. chilling in a way that so often eludes horror in games, I think. Yeah, it's a bottle version of society, as I said before, where if you have someone at the top that has this very uh, focused set of ideals, it's going to trickle down to how people treat each other very quickly. And, you know, that is what everyone ends up being like. Is like they are very manipulative in using their humanity to better themselves in how they well, how they feel they're bettering themselves they, 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 in order to get 
Adam in order to climb up and run up the ladder that doesn't, you know, has rotted away effectively by this point. They are all still working to the original vision of the person that got them here mm-hmm. without realizing it. And they are so deep into it, you know, that they just, yeah, that they lose inhibition in doing so. And it's, yeah, the Simon thing is key to that because it always starts in places of power where they feel they can get away with the abuse of power because they know people higher up will cover for them and will let them get away with it. And then it trickles through because there's no difference down here. Nobody comes out of it. Nobody in this world is left because of that. Anyone that was pure enough was never going to come here in the first place. And if they did, they were dead long before you got here. That is a really fantastic point. The sense that, you know, it essentially is a place that is built at its core identity for, you know, the quote unquote, the best members of all of these different Mm. classes and backgrounds. But in actuality, it's drawing the worst elements of each of these classes down the idea of, oh, there's no morality clauses here. It's like, what doctor is interested in that? (laughs) Yeah, How do you police it? (laughs) Exactly. How do you put not only how do you police it, but. You know, it really does paint Andrew Ryan as a supervillain, essentially. Yeah. You know, it. You know what I probably assumed uh, back in my naive days of being a high schooler when I first played it. Like, oh, he's an idealist. Wouldn't it be fantastic to have a place that you know is able to allow the brightest minds to flourish in a way that perhaps see innovation? But the reality is, is that if he is somebody that's so smart that can finance these things. The fact that he can't see people getting carried away yeah. with those things, you know, granted that's only came to light, uh, you know, the last decade in which I was playing the game, but it is something that I think does a really good job again of casting stones at people in general. And maybe that's part of where, and again, it's not to say necessarily that Bioshock Infinite's handling of things I disagree with. I, I think that overall, like, I enjoy that experience and the commentary it makes, but that might be why Bioshock goes under the radar a little more than Infinite because Bioshock, you know, it is people in general. And, you know, when you have that sort of finite lens in Infinite, it's more direct. So, of course, then people are going to be more vocal from certain pockets uh, of the internet and whatnot. Not to say that that's valid, but just overall thinking like, Bioshock itself evolved its areas and its environments based off of individuals from different backgrounds, and it can explore that in a more of a multifaceted way, perhaps. Yes. I think, I mean, this is also a whole thing to get into, but I think one of Infinite's in like in the, in the years that have passed for me, um, I think, I mean, I don't really think it's, a, I don't think, well, let me put it this way for my mumbling here. I think what tends to make uh, uh, one element for me, that tends to make Infinite's thematics weak is Infinite turned Bioshock into something else. Um, you know, when you hit the end of that game, which I, first of all, I fucking love it. I am super down for it. I love what it could mean for the series and franchise. They've done nothing since. Um, <laughs> but like, <laughs> it tur- it, I think, it, it, I think, I mean, I would personally say Bioshock is the more stronger thematic game. And even, Absolutely. For, even for the issues I have, I think it still objectively stands as the stronger of the three games. 
Um, I think Infinite was just so much more interested in creating this new sci-fi thing because that's ultimately what I, is the thing that stands out. And granted, it does also have a very powerful uh, father-daughter story to it. Yeah. I think it also elevates the idea of control to a new level. You know, it's like, it's expanding your horizons. It's making everything seem like it's big and massive and, oh my God, mind-blowingly, oh, it still connects like that. But then it just, when you go back and look at it, you think it's still very much what Bioshock was, especially when you go back to that DLC. The idea that you want and strive for freedom of choice and ultimately it's like you only have the choice that is available to you mm. in your situation. And I think that's the best thing of those the DLC episodes that, that come after that, especially. It's like you feel like you're in control. You feel like you're doing something, but somehow, I mean, to go into Infinite, especially here, it's like the fact that you're going into a story that has already played out, you know, you're going to a place where you are part of that story before you even realize it. Like that. So everything you're doing doesn't really matter because you've done it. You're there. And you know how this is going to play out. And I like that about it. The idea of infinite possibilities and the inevitability of personality and human humanity that you will pretty much play out the same way many, many times over and be tortured by the, that knowledge at the end. Yeah, that, 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 is, that is my ultimate favorite thing about Infinite, when, um, because I, I loved how that had, I will say this much, um, I had my fair moment of like, oh my god, the would you kindly reveal, that's so cool, huh? And as life has gone on, that's kind of like uh, faded for me, but um, to this mm-hmm. day, the revelation of like I always loved um God it's so bad for how much I enjoyed this game. Um the the main character Booker. Yeah, um, Booker DeWitt. I like the Booker Comstock dynamic a lot. I like what that tries to exp- what it does explore in terms of like morality and choices and how we have to live with choices and what we make our lives. I, I find that to be like that revelation has stayed with me so strongly to this day. Now, I think at this point, I'm not going to do the math off the top of my head. I think we have a shorter time span between where we are right now at this point in time and Infinite. Um, compared, obviously, compared to... It's still fresh to me, like, for lack of a better term. Six years between those games, you know, those three games, uh, and that seems mad now. You know, It's nine years since we've seen a game. And, you know, when it does come, it will be a different studio, really, and different all this and that's mad but yet going again to infinite another smart thing it does is the elizabeth um booker relationship slash constock relationship is again just evolving the big daddy and little sister relationship and again because of the way that and i know people make it sound like by going back to the beginning that you're just doing it for fan servicey reasons but it works because that central relationship is almost the thesis for everything that happens in Rapture mm. uh, with the, with that relationship. So it, it all ties in again. It all feels cyclical. And yeah, it's there. There are smart points to it that aren't as blunt force. And I think we already said, you know, the reason Infinite is so blunt force with a lot of this stuff is because it feels like a, 
oh, did you not get the point the last time? Okay, yeah. let's make the point more. And again, why I liken it to The Matrix uh, Resurrections is because, you know, it's a film that's saying, did you not get the point before? Did you or, you yeah. missed it? We will now make that point again, sort of thing. And obviously the people that end up being angry about that generally are the people that didn't get the point before. And so, yeah, it's a weird one. Yeah, and it, it's... An endlessly fascinating thing about those free games is that you have these constant tests of in there and everyone thinks it's just the first game that does it right. Mm. Whereas it's the same message all throughout, just told in different ways. And that relays again into the idea of it being an infinite way of telling the same story in multiple ways. And you will never escape that story. And we're going to keep repeating it over and over again until you get it is the idea it's like until you learn to walk away from what you're saying about it and just leave it be you know you will keep repeating it and keep being baffled about oh why why is this not working for me the same way it did last time it's because we've changed something we've changed one little bit about it that is and now you're feeling like oh well now now in this context i don't like it but now you know, fundamentally, it's the same story. That's brilliant. Brilliant. You know, we've been talking about Bioshock and how, you know, it had these very, at least, you know, for Michael and I, when we played it when it first came out, right, it had these moments that felt very revelatory about games and the types of stories that we told in games, the types of worlds that could be experienced on console, which, you know, for that time period, it just, it felt revolutionary, for the types of games that we typically ascribe to being console experiences. And, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times the twist, the would you kindly, right? The fact that the player has been under this mind control throughout the game and whatnot. And how, while that has not held up as well, you know, you can kind of, you can pick up on the key moments, of course, when that's being used to dictate those massive actions that are dictating the course of the game. I think that overall, though, like the, that moment exposed me to the reality that, oh, you can have unreliable narrators in a video game, which is something that I'd only previously experienced in something like American Psycho. The fact that what I'm being shown or what I'm being told is not something that you can believe outright. And again, you know, for 15-year-old me at the time, that was like a mind-altering thing where I was just like, oh, okay, being a little more present and not falling into maybe the revolutions of being in a first person shooter, right? You need to be a little more present for what's happening, be a little more cognizant developments, which, you know, changed my approach to not only console games, but video games in general, which then, you know, over the sense then, like having uh, sought out games that of course were either immersive Sims or first person shooters that do more than, you know, just be shooters, which I think again, like you talk about, the ways in which people can label games or genres, you can't really just give a blanket description of anything, whether it be a first-person shooter or otherwise, because there can be levels to everything, of course. And I think that for me, this was that moment where I was like, oh, it's like a whole new world of potential. But of course, you know, exploring a back catalog of games that perhaps had been doing things similar, it kind of just, again, opened me up to uh, the real possibilities of games. And that was... Essentially, my games could be art moment that, you know, Michael kind of mentioned earlier. Yeah, absolutely. For me, that was always Metal Gear Solid 2. So, you know, it's like 
being older. So <laughs> it, that, that came at a time, probably the same it did for you guys, where it was like, oh, wow, this, this is mind-blowing. It's doing things in games I, I never thought possible. And again, has a very meta nature to it in doing so that has just felt enriching year after year mm. after year. And so, yeah, that's where I can appreciate Bioshock the most is I can absolutely see that, especially if you're a certain age, it's a game that appreciates in value because you have these extra takes and layers that as you grow older, you go, wow, now when I'm at this age, I can add this to what I thought about that. And it's enriching. And, you know, we have this thing about, oh, games and films and games that want to be like films in terms of like production and blah, blah, blah. And the ones that get it right, the ones that take the lesson from film is that how do you make it insightful? How do you make it memorable? And how do you make it something that you can come back to time and again? It's not production values. It's not making it a big spectacle because generally what you have with that is very light, you know, and unmemorable. So what you want to do is take ambition with that technical status and, and really push forward ideas. And, you know, here is very much, you know, been saying all along you know great production values you know each scene that is supposed to be important is choreographed perfectly and this is why then it's like married to the idea of oh we had these very simple ways of telling something a bit more complicated with that you, you can push it and of course the side effect of that is yes people will then get it wrong because of course they will because it's being fed to them through a more casual manner and yeah what, what can you do about that that's the side effect of doing that but at the same time then you can have people like us who can talk about games in this way now because of games like this mm. because they, they offered gateways to new places you know like and you know thematically it's there you know it's like will you just keep going through the same doorway, the same lighthouse and telling the same story in your head over and over again about how the games can be or will you explore beyond that and be welcoming of new ideas when they come up and not just go, well, I like this, this is my favourite game ever, so any game that doesn't do anything like this is shit, blah, 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 blah. And you think how much games have evolved and changed and widened and broadened as a thing in the years, in the 15 years since this came out. And it's remarkable. Mm. You know, there are games that tell stories deeper than this that don't have the same gameplay things, but are a smoother experience now. And you can have something that is big budget, tells a great story, is subversive in some way, and gives you that same sort of sharp, dig in the ribs reaction. You know, it's like people will, be, feel pained by what they're playing because they, they feel uncomfortable with being told things that are outside their comfort zone. And you know, games like Bioshock helped push us to that level. You know, they helped give us games that are not afraid to do that. And the scary thing is, I find, is that as gaming has become more popular and certain games will sell like megatons because of what they do the things they do tend to be more like ironically the things that bioshock is teaching you against you know, the idea of like just 
stuff that everyone could be cult-like in following, you know, like console wars, like certain, you know, simplistic ideas and of what a blockbuster game can be whilst having feelings, you know, like that and not accepting the flaws of that storytelling, you know. We, you know, the flaws are there to be criticised in any of these things. But, you know, that, again, a fundamental lesson that Bioshock teaches you is like, don't take someone's preaching as gospel. You know, it's like you, you can criticise it and think about it outside the box, even the person creating the game like that. And, yeah, it's sadly something that doesn't feel like kind of learned on that scale of game. But we've thankfully had a whole other side of things that has, you know, really enriched that side of things and, and really tells stories in ways that feel more honest and frank and truthful and self-critical, you know. Well, you can only hope too, you know, it's still compared to film, such a young medium. Yeah. You know, I think we're heading obviously in that direction where, you know, the audience is maturing to catch up to, you know, the types of mature storytelling that we want to explore in the medium of games mm. and whatnot. You know, granted, since the original Bioshock and even since Infinite, I feel that, you know, with every handful of years, people are, the conversations are changing from just like, well, it's just a game. Like it shouldn't be saying anything real, like separating reality from games. And I think that we've always been heading in that direction. And if anything, it just, it makes for, yeah. and granted, you know, you can never, uh, you can never factor in societal climates and things of that nature, oh, politically yeah. or otherwise, right? That's always going to be a point of contention. But I think that generally speaking, you know, these types of games, when you go back and look at them, it's the type of thing where you're able to appreciate the swings that they took in tackling complex subject matter yes. that before that was only legitimized by, you know, film or literature. Um, and now it's games, you know, while there are more facets that can go into that and kind of having that balance of, you know, not only gameplay, player involvement, thematics and whatnot, um, it can be a little more complicated in that regard. But, you know, I think that we have these games every handful of years that show that, and it's based off the reception in general, like you're heading in a direction where there's an audience that is, I think less and less pockets of that audience are just, fighting against the fact that it's tackling subject matter that naturally games should tackle in some regards. Not every game, not every genre, but it is definitely a piece of video game, the video game medium that should be and should be tackling them and challenging people in ways that, again, as I said before, only more, I suppose, uh, pillared mediums, if you will, mediums that have been around for hundreds, if not more years, felt like they were the authority to do that. And now you would hope that games are being more viable in being a platform to tackle those things. Yeah. Sometimes it takes time to sort of appreciate what things can do. You know, yes. like it, that, that that's true of any medium. You know, it's like there are there's stuff that gets maligned and you know, shouted at in so many ways at the time that later proves to be something more significant and even the stuff that gets liked and loved even on a level doesn't get liked and loved for the, the things that really matter i mean again we go back to this whole social media idea of things are like you know star wars being like this big thing that it is and then there are this 
a whole subset of people that love Star Wars that don't fucking get the point of Star yeah. Wars. You know, yeah. like they, they don't get what it's doing. I mean, that is the most blunt force idea of like good versus evil you could get. And apparently that that's too hard for some people to understand mm. because yeah, I, I you didn't know the stormtroopers were actually the good guys. Um, but I think in, uh, before, you know, before wrapping up, I guess, Michael, I want to give you the floor for if there were any element, you know, you, I'm always appreciative of guests that bring a, uh, a bevy of notes, uh, to the discussion. I want to make sure we don't pass over anything that you, uh, wanted to make a point to chat about. Well, I wanted to, yeah, I, I'm just going to throw in my two cents about the, would you kindly, um, to which I want to caveat one, um, I hope I articulate this well and two, I absolutely agree with the points that you two have made about this. That twist is something, one, that impacted me when I first played the game in 2007, had a huge impact, and as I've said numerous times already, influenced me to explore more of these games. And two, I have still to this day a great, great appreciation and respect for how it has influenced media and how it has... I don't, I'm trying to think of the best way to articulate this, but introduced people to maybe read and become and like research more and to discover more about life and to be more open-minded about things. So like to all that stuff, I give credit to me and maybe this could be, maybe I think this is, we could call this a different perspective to humor. Maybe we can just call it a perspective that is looking at it the wrong way. Um, but the scene for me has not, age well because of gamification and also because i've seen other video games to actually both your points that has done this so fucking well um for me you know it's like i I think i said this back while i was rambling at some point that one of you know because of course the game's trying to embrace this it's supposed to be a set uh a satirical of rand but it's like you know one of her points being like um she doesn't believe in man serving uh anyone else to find their own purpose or value and that you need to be yourself. And Andrew Ryan just constantly repeats, um, um, I forget the fucking line, but uh, a man chooses and a slave obeys. So the game among a lot of its themes really wants to also hone in a lot on like, you get to make your choice and what is free will and what is control and something I came to really at first like about this game. And something I do like is it makes you in a meta way, think about video games. And I really like that. And I really appreciate that until like, I kind of start to feel that like of all the things it's sharing with me and telling me, maybe this is a better conversation piece. And it's something to have a great conversation on a podcast, but in a video game, it's not done super great because I, I go back to that scene. You get the, you know, you get all the context Andrew Ryan keeps saying, would you kindly? And you're like, oh my God, I've been just doing what the would you kindly trigger does. And wow, I've been exploring this, this, and this. And like, oh, could it be a thing that I've just been doing what the developer wants me to do, right? So all that bullshit happens. And then Andrew Ryan gets knocked off. And then you have the scene where Atlas Fontaine is just like, um, you need to put the key card in the machine before Rapture blows up. Would you kindly do this? And then you have that moment where you're like, okay, well, I just realized about this trigger and I understand what it does. I understand its function in the game. So you know what? Fuck you guys at 2K. I'm going to defy you. I'm not going to would you kindly anything. And I'm not going to put the key card in there. 
you just threw $60 out the window because it's a video game and you can't progress without having to do what the developers want you to do. And so like, that's something where it's like, and again, I also, I mentioned that caveat where it's like, maybe this is an interesting meta conversation to have. And it's not obviously something the game is really trying to be like, Oh, think of this as a video game. Um, But I also say that with the fact that like, I've seen games like the Stanley parable critique what it means to make choice and making choice within a video game. And it's so fascinating. Sorry. I had to Mm. emphasize that. That's a great show. I mean, that, 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 that really is an evolution of that idea. Uh, I mean, it really just pushes it, even with the Ultra Deluxe Edition, which is like, God. just takes a whole new level to that sort of thing. It is, yeah, but that is a game that is making its point very, you know, succinctly. I think, you know, it, it understands what it's doing. And I think we're at a point with games that now that makes more sense. Whereas, uh, you know, I don't think you could have done that then. You know, and really mm. had the same because I think games have evolved. Even the, I mean, in the six years between Bioshock and Infinite, games have changed so much. Yeah, and it's incredible. Yeah. And, and uh, that's why I feel like it was Infinite is such a, a need to sort of go back to the original point and make it in a more blatant way is because that's seemed to be the way that companies were going with things you know 2k you know being chief among the uh companies doing such things so yeah it, it's an interesting sort of thing you know backstory behind everything that's going on that yeah sure you can look at it and go oh maybe it's not deliberate it's just happen happenstance and you know you can wolf on about anything you like about any game and make it sound profound if you want but you know, I think it's warranted because yeah, you know, the the key building blocks are there yeah. in Bioshock to to make you have that kind of thinking. And that's where, and, and again, not I don't mean this in any condescending way, but I think for me, subjectively, that's the greater benefit of that scene because it is a conversation starter, not to be derivative, but it's a conversation starter, and it's blossomed in the history of video games in the past fifty years, and that's why I will always respect that scene, and I'll consider it one of my personal all-time favorites even if i want to be nitpicky with crap you know but like i said that that's the best thing about games that are great or, or any medium that is great is like th- that you can see why people might be critical of it and still appreciate it for what it does you know like that it's a, you should never love something to the point that you cannot accept criticism of it Oh, of course like, not. You, yeah, yeah. You, you you could be annoyed by it, sure, and say, "Well, that's stupid." Come on, don't be stupid. But when when you have constructive criticism of something mm. and how it may not may or may not work, and Bioshock Infinite is great at that because I absolutely agree. But then you know that you can have a roundabout discussion and go round and round and say, "Yeah, I get it. I get that you feel like that. I understand that you may feel that it's just." You know, clunky and blunder headed in what it's doing but i will then say well i think it's just doing that because it has to because that's the point we got to and yeah i think that that's the best we can hope for you know in any art medium is something that creates discussion that's all you want i mean look I mean, what are we, two fucking hours into this? You know, it says it all. <laughs> it, that, that's exactly it. For a game that, you know, personally, I don't care as much about as you two do. 
<laughs> like here I am fucking pontificating on it constantly because I think it does interesting things. It's like I, oh. I may not like it as a game as much as you do, but it has that. It has something to it. So there you go. You know, straight away, I, I'm oh, here praising the socks off a game that I wouldn't put in my top 100 of all time. Uh, but I still think it's important. It does what you know and has had such an impact on the world of gaming and greater media because it understood what it was doing, you know, and uh, has layers to it that are still being felt to this day. Absolutely agree. And like, yeah. And then to, to the point of like, you know, when you, I I absolutely want to like reiterate that what you just said about like, you know, loving something is also understanding it and being critical and being fairly critical in like an understanding way. And like I said, the beginning of this, episode it's just like even though some people are going to hear like the doo-doo i have to say about bioshock i still stand by the fact that like it's the it's the game i uh continuously or consistently consistently refer to as my favorite game like yeah like i say this stuff because i love it and it, it inspired so much of like you know let alone my writing let alone my, my game playing my my love of art you know it changed a lot well, I think that it speaks to just what this game was able to achieve in a way that fundamentally affected, you know, people like us, right? The fact that we've been able to talk about it now for almost two and a half hours and haven't been talking about, you know, the gameplay mechanics or this and that or these little anecdotes about combat, right? I think that, you know, we sure, we could have mentioned those things, but we're highlighting the things that make it yeah. That would be a real short episode if it was yes. just about, yo, here's how the game handles. Here's, you know, the, <laughs> the one-two punch with the plasma bolts and wrench swinging and whatnot. But I think that if anything, it's indicative that we've talked about almost everything with the exception of gameplay sure. for majority of our time talking about it. Because it does so many things that were revolutionary for games that, you know, it's probably due in part to like when Michael, you and I played the game, right? And where we were with, you know, the types of games we were playing and that thing that it really did kind of make a significant milestone for the two of us. And that why, you know, Neil and you going from two and then infinite and then back, you know, you wouldn't be able to have that same experience, especially years later. But at the same time, to your point, you can appreciate the things that it did that make it remarkable or at least a standout, let's say, uh, from 15 years later, you know, the fact that we're been able to celebrate uh, its anniversary for as long as we have. I think just to quick point this out, I think a benefit of talking about it on a podcast without having an agenda that, you know, we have to be nasty and critical of stuff because it's popular. When you think about most discussion about video games, it comes in short form mm. uh, between people and it comes in a very punchy way say forums were the big things still are there uh twitter being the thing that it doesn't really give you any sort of ability to debate it you know properly and as a result there's lots of repetition of points and like people out there trying to get their point across as quick as they can without really thinking about what they're saying and so they, they will just think of the thing that comes to their mind first and they will often be like a negative or an overly positive point and try and defend that point like it's, you know, king of the hill sort of thing. Mm. They have to have it. And, yeah, it's, I think that's why we're kind of privileged to do this and to 
be able to chat about this for this amount of time is because you know Michael you know can come in here he's got the notes because he wants to he has so much he wants to talk about the game that he loves and you know by admittance on the other end I'm coming here with none like <laughs> like I just I want to feel the vibe of how you guys feel mm. and then see where that takes me mm-hmm. and takes my thinking of things and I like that, you know, uh, that's the way discussions should be yes. about things, especially you know, in terms of like talking about it in a healthy way. And I know we always try to strive to be positive about stuff on Hell this yeah. podcast. So yeah, that, that's it. I'm always looking for that angle. Uh, I suppose that's no different from anyone who's starting a, a writing or podcasting angle of, you know, let's look for the hot take in this sort of thing like that. But yeah, no. you always, you, you are, carving for it to find a point you know do you mean you don't like having your 280 character tweets taken out of context do you not yeah, like that yeah i've long since stopped caring about you're, that i'm bland as fuck when like it comes to twitter argument? Yeah. <laughs> i like to have all of my in-depth debates 280 characters at a time yeah i mean i yeah i grew up on forums 20 years ago so i i've long been in the uh i've had my trolling times i've had you know like, like i said i i can get it I will piggyback off of what you're saying, though, in that it's a, that is the benefit of the podcast, right? Is that we get to have people that are as enthusiastic, mm. as knowledgeable about a game as Michael is, and then we get to talk about it in depth. Um, yeah. So that's the type of thing that I think is definitely fantastic, and it's why you know we love having guests on, and you know we'll continue to do so in the future. And uh, yeah. Michael, we're gonna have to find another game, even though I think we've uh, we've already kind of talked about we, it. I think we've uh, talked about it. Yeah, there's <laughs> something in the pipeline down in the future that uh, we could definitely have you back on to chat about. But uh, I guess in wrapping up, I kind of just I want to give you the floor to be able to plug uh, maybe any articles that you've been working on recently, or your Twitter at the very least, so uh, people can follow all of your excellent work at uh the number of websites that you uh contribute to at the moment so my twitter is p e m e n t e l m it's my last name pementel and my first initial m so pementel m um i mean i you know there's a bunch of fun stuff there uh i share my writing and whatnot at the moment um i'm writing full-time where i do news and interviews and features for uh the pits which is i have a metal site I'm done shooting the shit with a lot of folks, like um, not necessarily metal related, but John Carpenter. Um, that was super cool. Got to shoot the shit with him about Metallica. Um, and then I do write for Bloody Disgusting. I probably shouldn't say this because it's a jinx, even though it's happening. Um, <laughs> but a certain favorite comic book character of mine just had a big movie anniversary, and I'm doing something about that. So let's keep it like that. Um, so keep a look out for that on Bloody Disgusting soon. And I got some other stuff in the pipeline, but like, I'll probably mention that on my Twitter. So follow me on Twitter. And then like, you might see that I have some other things going on on different platforms. Mm. Absolutely. And we'll be sure to uh, link your social on the uh, blog post and also the episode notes for anybody that's interested in checking out your work. But hey, man, this was a pleasure. And I'm so happy that we were able to finally make this happen. So thanks again for your time and chatting Bioshock. Thank you so much. And yeah, let alone the fact that I love Bioshock. I love games and I love this podcast and I love what you two do. And it's been an incredible honor. It's really been a great, it's a, been a wonderful honor to talk to you two, be able to shoot the shit, um, have friendly disagreements, have like really wonderful agreements. And like, I, I really appreciate your time and your kindness and open ears. And that was our chat with Michael Pemintel about Bioshock. And, you know, Neil, it's always great getting to have guests on that, 
you know, we've both worked with in some capacity, whether it's mm. on, you know, you've obviously worked with Michael previously on Blade Disgusting side of things. I've had him on my podcast. And it's always just nice to like have a guest that is as enthusiastic about a game as one of us are, but at the same time, yes. you know, getting to put a face to uh, the avatar that we've <laughs> been interacting with for, you know, whether yeah. it be months or even years in some <laughs> cases. Yeah, it's always strange to sort of finally sort of get that sort of not quite face to face, but just having more of a, an idea of a person you know, like that, you know, because as, as we discussed, you know, Twitter is no way to sort of really establish that emails only do so much. And yeah. even through people's writing, you're only getting a sliver of what they are. So yeah, it's nice to sort of get the full picture. I think we're equally, you know, excited to have lots of listener replies this week. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. awesome when uh, we're covering a game that, you know, we have a pretty good inkling is, uh, you know, pretty beloved. <laughs> Um, but, you know, as always for anybody that's listening, you know, we're always open to comments uh, that people have about games that we're going to cover. And so if any listeners out there feel like contributing and having a uh, reply, feel free to tweet us at SafeRoomPod or you guys can email us at SafeRoomPod at gmail.com uh, and we'll read your uh, responses on the air. And one thing I will say is maybe just keep it to a couple of sentences. We've always appreciate people reaching out and sharing their thoughts on things, but to read it on the air, maybe just condense it down to a couple of sentences. Um, but we do appreciate people's enthusiasm, obviously for reaching out. Yeah. As much as we, it seems condescending or, or hypocritical to say that, Oh, you can't talk too much. That's our job. But <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I can totally get when we get replies like that, that, that very much follow the vein of what we do. But yeah, in, in terms of like space and time, mm-hmm. it definitely works better to be short, sweet and succinct. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we're going to start this week with at Peter is hungry, who says as a huge Bioshock fan, I still think it's underrated as a horror game. Its legacy is more about the setting and themes. When I first played it, I was struck by how effectively scary it was. It took me by surprise when I was just expecting a smart shooter. The jump scares, atmosphere, and villains are super freaky. And who can forget the Sander Cohen level? I was bracing throughout. Next up is at Pluto Blums, which, who says, Bioshock 1 absolutely works and it's time to shock people and has good level design, but its forced weapon or plasmid setup makes Bioshock 2 far more fun to revisit. Next up is at Starter Pack 1. Bioshock 2 had worse story and destroyed the last game's ending, but the gameplay was so much better. Plasmid upgrades were more than stat boosters and gun upgrades mattered. It was extremely fluid too. Traded the switching hands from plasmid to gun to carrying both. I think uh, one of our comments this week definitely delves more into, you know, the more mm-hmm. fluidity of being able to use both at the same time, which uh, I think we'll comment further on in a little bit. Uh, next up is at Miss Vivi, who says Bioshock literally changed the way games were made. Bioshock 2 is their favorite. But I have the original's Fort Frolic level memorized. There's definitely a handful of levels in there that uh, the both of us can memorize, or at least uh, us and our guests can. Uh, next up is at Broxton Aider. Bioshock is, in my humble opinion, the greatest video game ever made. Incredible shooter, a story most games designers can only dream of. I only wish the game to ever make me feel guilty. Uh, I would maybe think that's in reference to like the harvesting of the little sisters, perhaps. Um, let's see. Next up is from friend of the show, Aaron Bain, who says, 
While I don't think the famous twist is quite as capital, uh, important as I used to think it was, though the way that the reveal plays out is perfect, there's so much in Bioshock that makes it an iconic classic. The world building and characters are absolutely top of class. I'll always remember getting the demo of the game first thing when I bought my PS3, playing five minutes of it, then going out and picking up the game. That Descent into Rapture is one of the best hooks for a game opening of all time. I actually think the game in the series I'm most fond of is Bioshock 2, which added so many quality of life improvements to the gameplay while telling a more personal story. Infinite took a big step back mechanically and also had a lot of questionable missteps in its messaging. Even though the final one left a sour taste in my mouth, I'm excited to see what's in store for the future of the franchise with the not-so-secret, long-in-development new game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think we kind of touched upon that in our episode, right? Overall, while Infinite maybe has a misstep here or there, I think that it solidifies the overall thematic that ties yeah. the games together, which I think furthermore just makes people excited, fans like us, excited for what comes next because there's a certain benchmark that was solidified with that and I guess throughout the whole series in general and just seeing the ways in which they can continue that with a new setting I think is exciting. You know, Hopefully the yes. messaging perhaps will be uh, a little tighter there in that regard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we've gone through our thoughts on the messaging and why it is and it isn't great so yeah i i think yeah we 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 covered that nicely so far so yeah it's a obvious point of contention i I think it's the best way to put it (laughs) absolutely uh let's see next up is another friend of the show harrison abbott who says bioshock this came out when i was 12 years old and it's the title (laughs) that fundamentally (laughs) furthermore making (laughs) aging aging neil and slightly aging me i'm only about three years older than uh harrison but (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, um, the title that fundamentally changed his perception of video games and what they could aspire towards. Um, He says, I have vivid memories of my dad renting it from Blockbuster and me being entranced from the moment I first entered the bathysphere. It initially grabbed me with its immersive world, gorgeous art design, creepy atmosphere, thrilling big daddy fights, and the fact that I could shoot bees at people. That's definitely something I forgot to uh, (laughs) mention during the course of our chat. That's a fantastic feature that... uh, Definitely speaks to the wild and wackiness with which the direction the plasmids take in Bioshock and, you know, furthermore throughout the series. But uh, he also says, but I soon realized that I was enjoying it on an even deeper level, even if (laughs) stupid child Harrison couldn't articulate that at the time. Still Mm -hmm. one of my all time favorites. Hate the pipe minigame, though. Uh, Yeah, the hacking, I think we we kind of glanced over, but it doesn't deserve much talking about yeah, I think, you know, mechanically, Bioshock is left in the dust by many games, including its sequels since, but doesn't matter because it's still competent enough. I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it just, it's not show off or stand out. I think the way games have changed in the, the years since, where it's been shown that you don't have to have such, you know, intricate, spellbindingly amazing gameplay uh you know stuff to to play with to really understand and make a compelling game you know it's you can have a a really great game that does fuck all in terms of like being played you know like it's there and that i feel is another reason why their bioshock can continue to be relevant and feel 
relevant is that we we have that understanding now. And last but certainly not least is another friend of the show, Michael Sandel, who says Bioshock, especially nowadays, gets dismissed as another RPG light shooter, a system shock redux, and a pretentious wank for the works of Anne Rand. <laughs> These takes aren't just reductive, they're missing the point. The first Bioshock was a title that made more people think, hmm, maybe video games can be art than ever before. It put effort into giving us characters that weren't simply good or bad, but layered, complex, and entertaining. The team wasted no effort in creating a world that was actually unique, with art design that kept it looking beautiful through generations of graphical updates. The music, both licensed and scored, was exquisite, and the Art Deco aesthetic, combined with the punk aesthetic, made for an unforgettable journey. The sequel would improve the gameplay, and Infinite would widen the scope, but that first dive into Rapture is truly special. It's one of my Desert Island 5 in a game I will never tire of. God damn, there's somebody we have to get back on the podcast as soon as yeah. their schedule, <laughs> schedule opens up. Uh, not only well said, but uh, definitely, I think, rings true with our sensibilities with the game uh, in terms of kind of some of the things that we covered. I can't believe I'd never mentioned the score of this game, which, you know, does yeah, a I mean, lot that's working my, in tandem with remit, that uh, environment. Yeah, I mean, again, it just so much to does cover. A wonderful job. Yeah, it, it does. A, the score does a wonderful job, and yeah, that is normally the first thing I like to point out about most games. But there's so much to the game that works anyway. It's not the forefront of why it's great. You know, it's just it's yeah, it's thematically good. You know, it works within the confines of what it's doing. I suppose personally, I don't, I don't find it to be a spectacular score. I just think it does the job. You know, it gets in there, does a very workmanlike idea of like, well, this is the remit. This is what we need to do with it. Perfect. Does the job. I prefer infinite, you know, um, more sort of pushing the boundaries of things and doing the weird mashup covers and things mm. like that. Yeah. Stuff like that. It, it worked for me better, but yeah, it's, it's still a very good soundtrack to, you know, that, that it doesn't just feel like plonked on. It is very much a part and parcel of the game. Probably why it, go, it goes unnoticed. I think maybe in, when you talk about Bioshock in general. Yeah. You know, I think like any part of this game, it does a great job of, you know, instilling the time and the place in mm. a way that makes it that much more of an environment that's, you know, atmospheric, but also like kind of suffocating in the period that it's derived from or that it's trying to replicate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, that's going to do it for one, probably our second longest episode on record. I think that, you know, I, yeah, I definitely, sorry. uh, rambled a bit more than I usually do just because it's one of those games that, uh, <laughs> you know, was, is so important to me. And it's a game that, you know, came at a very important time, I think, in my yes. consumption of games or getting back into games. You know, I've talked ad nauseum about like having these ebbs and flows over the last, you know, handful of years about like, coming to games, taking a break from games, coming back. And this was a game that like really kicked off a significant portion of me diving back into games. Um, and yeah, you know, it helps when we have as fantastic of a guest as uh, we had. But uh, Neil, until next time, it's always a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Yeah, until the next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. We'll see you guys next Monday.